Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. So we're moving now into chapter 3. This paragraph in the third chapter is included in the way it's usually broken down by the commentaries as belonging to the previous section in chapter 2. Five sections where there's controversy with the religious leaders. So this is the last paragraph. That doesn't mean there's no more controversy or conflict, but they group these paragraphs together. There's five of them in succession, and Jesus is kind of embroiled in some controversy and conflict, particularly with uh, the Pharisees. Let me read verses 1 to 6. Now, last week we were looking at Jesus' uh, discussion there about the Sabbath, and uh, his disciples had done some reaping. It wasn't really reaping like a huge harvest, but they were gleaning. And this, in their view, was breaking the Sabbath. Now he's breaking the Sabbath yet again. So there's actually seven accounts. When you put, look at all four of the Gospels, seven different times when the Lord Jesus uh, heals somebody on the Sabbath day. What's important about that, um, because it gives him an opportunity to discuss the keeping of the seventh seventh day, the proper way of observing the Sabbath. And this is yet again on that subject. So it is important. Again, he entered the synagogue... And a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. So that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? What a question. But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So this is, this is kind of the culmination of this series of stories because now um, they've upped it, uh, what they want to do with Jesus. Very strong language here. So in the last paragraph, Jesus announced that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. Now we're going to see him here really telling them and us what is the Sabbath um, made for, and in what sense it's to be kept, and so on. So it's an important 
So first of all, in verses 1 and 2, notice that Jesus' actions, again, are scrutinized by the Pharisees. He entered the synagogue, probably the synagogue in Capernaum. Doesn't specify, it's not important to know, but that's the one that seems to be the focus of many of these things that occurred, that it was the synagogue in Capernaum. That synagogue is now underground, and another synagogue was constructed on top of it, but you can see part of the foundation of it if you go there today in Israel. They've excavated that whole area. I walked into the area of the synagogue that was constructed in the 4th century. It's interesting how it's laid out, and it'll play into this. You'll see in a moment. So the Lord Jesus, he's following the Jewish practices, their religious practices, because he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. He's a good Jew. (laughs) He's keeping the law just like the rest of them. The Lord Jesus, he was under the law, and he kept the law perfectly. He was the perfect law keeper. So now there's this man mentioned right off with a withered hand. This means his hand was shriveled. Uh, It had atrophied for some reason. It got smaller. He lost uh, his muscle in it. Uh, It wasn't functionable. He couldn't use this hand. And this was a huge handicap because Luke's account says it was his right hand. It's very specific. The right hand was very important. But not only for that reason, but, uh, you know, you need your hands, both hands for manual labor and The majority of men back in the first century, they were blue-collar workers. They didn't have jobs behind desks. Now, except Levi, the tax collector, he could sit at a place and just take money from people. But all the others, many people had to labor with their hands. So to not have one of your hands was a huge disability. And this was a calamity for this man, that he had a withered hand. So the Pharisees, they watched him. The word in the original, uh, it's brought out, it's, it's actually a verb made up of two words. It's a compound verb, which uh, intensifies the meaning. It says they're watching him very intently. Now, the irony of this is that they're in the synagogue. They're there to worship God. But they've got an evil eye on Jesus, wanting to find something to entrap him. And they know that Jesus heals on the synagogue. He healed, rather, on the Sabbath day because of what occurred in the first chapter of Mark's account. He healed someone else on the Sabbath. So they, they suspected that he would. But they're watching him, that they might accuse him, that is, bring charges against him. So this is a very serious thing, to bring a charge against someone who had broken the Sabbath. The death penalty, actually, if they're in the Old Testament, was attached to breaking the Sabbath. Yeah, they were not driven by their love for God um, and their love for the Sabbath. That's not what's behind their wanting to bring charges. It's actually because of their hatred of this man and their jealousy of Jesus. And nothing would please them more than to see that Jesus 
uh, was discredited as a prophet and then to be put to death. The teaching of Jewish scholars connected with uh, legal issues, it was their view, and I think the Pharisees are influenced by this, that a cure uh, that could be administered by a physician, that was not allowed on the Sabbath day. It's not a situation involving the man's life. It's not a matter of life and death. Uh, he's sick. You, you can't treat uh, illness. I guess that's what it meant. They couldn't cure uh, involving a doctor on the Sabbath. But if God did something miraculous and healed somebody on the Sabbath, they can't protest that. They can't forbid God himself to heal on the Sabbath. So they did recognize that something perhaps uh, miraculous could occur in somebody's situation on the seventh day, and they would just have to be quiet about it, and it happened, and there isn't anything more to say. So they did draw a distinction between something God did or would do versus a doctor. So Jesus, he's not allowed to do good on the Sabbath, but they're conspiring against him. That's kind of the irony here, that they're trying to find something to uh, bring charges against Jesus. So they're, they're plotting evil is starting to show up here in this account. Now, notice the question Jesus brings before his enemies, verses 3 and 4. So he says to the man with the withered hand, come here. That's a very simple uh, command or, you know, just two words, but it's a little more involved in the original. He's actually telling him to get up in the middle of the synagogue, into the center. Um, The seating in the synagogue was not like this. It was along the walls on benches. So there's a big open space in the middle. Jesus is calling the man into the center of the synagogue. So he's got this withered hand. He's got a huge disability Probably he didn't appreciate being called into the center of the synagogue like that. Yeah, that he was being made a little bit of a spectacle of and being stared at. But that's what Jesus did. He summoned him to the center. Notice the man isn't seeking healing. This man did not come to Jesus and say, Lord, please heal my hand. I'm sure it caught him off guard and probably may have thought, why did I come here this morning or, you know, regretted coming to the synagogue that day. It was probably a little embarrassing for him. I'm just trying to read between the lines. So he has the man here in front of him and everyone's gathered on the side and he poses the question to the group. Is it lawful? 
That means, is it agreeable or consistent with the law of Moses? Let's take it to the fourth commandment. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm? Now, just right off, this has an obvious answer, and Jesus is saying the obvious. This is what we would call a truism. It's just surface, it's obvious what the answer is. To do good or to do harm, that is to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath. Clearly, uh, to do good on the Sabbath, this is the right thing. Everybody would agree, the Pharisees would agree with this. They're not going to contest this. So, healing would be permitted on the Sabbath in their view if the person was very ill and his life was in jeopardy. The the Pharisees would go along with that. But the man is not in danger of dying. He's just got a withered hand. So it's, in their view, it's not a life and death situation. So they think, well, he can, this should be put off till Sunday. Healing the next day, not, not on Saturday. So they would agree in principle, but still they held to this that the man should not be healed on the Sabbath day. It's not serious enough. But for Jesus, I believe he's telling them that actually the man's need is desperate. No, it's not a matter of life and death, but it's his right hand. It's withered. It's a huge disability. It impairs his life a great deal. So there was a, an imperative here in the view of the Lord Jesus, a moral imperative that this comes under the category of something good that needed to be done. It, his healing was not to be delayed. It was the right thing to do. The Pharisees were condemning something as evil, which in fact was good and should be done. I think that's the point that's being underscored here by Jesus. But now notice the last part, to save life or to kill. Now this is extreme. This is taking it uh, further, the principle of good and doing harm. Now, to save life or to actually destroy life. This can't really be applied to the man. It wasn't a matter of life and death with him. So who is Jesus referring to perhaps here? He's got something else in mind. To save life or to kill. It's very possible he's referring to himself. Because he knows what's going on in the hearts of these Pharisees. That they would like to kill him right now. If they had the opportunity. And I think he's exposing their hypocrisy to themselves. That they're plotting to end his life on the Sabbath day. But yet they would say, oh, clearly to save life on the Sabbath day. Not to kill and so he's, uh, I think he's exposing their thoughts to them. They're guardians of the Sabbath, 
Yet they in their hearts were determining to do harm, to do evil, even to kill on the Sabbath day. Now in verses 5 and 6, the Lord answers his own question. So he lays out the question to them, just to ponder, but he's going to answer it by what he does. Verses 5 and 6. They were silent. They didn't know what to say to him. But he looked around on them with anger. It's one of the few times it speaks of the anger of Jesus. He had all the human emotions that we all have in this world. Only his was without sin. His anger was intense. Intense displeasure. What made him angry? I think it was the fact that these men, when they were confronted with this man's disability, and clearly he's suffering because of it in his life, that they could not find it in their hearts to show any kind of compassion and mercy to him out of their wanting to observe the Sabbath day. That caused great displeasure with Jesus. Jesus' anger was controlled. It was without sin. It was not the rage that characterizes most anger that's expressed by man today, by us. People are murdered out of anger. The Apostle Paul, I thought, would just tie this in. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So it is possible to be angry about things without sin. And I like what one of the old Puritans said that explains being angry without sin. This is a good line for you. If you want to write this down, this is the perfect explanation of be angry and do not sin. If you would be angry without sin, then be angry only on account of sin. And that not so much as it is an injury to us, as it is an offense to God. There it is. That's how to be angry without sin. Right there. Be angry on account of sin, and that because it's an offense to God. Notice Coupled with Jesus' anger is grief. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, their insensitivity, their callousness to human suffering. The Pharisees had no empathy for this man with a withered hand. No empathy. Only concerned about the rules of keeping the Sabbath. This is what was where they had gone amiss. And it would grieve Jesus. So Jesus had anger and grief at the same time. He had anger and sorrow over this. Sorrow for the man with the withered hand and I think probably sorrow for the Pharisees that they could be so hard-hearted. So Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hands. That's a command. 
Notice there's no contact. You didn't have to touch him. Just stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Now, just think of, you know, it, it seems like a shriveled hand isn't a big deal. Oh, it was a huge deal. The hand was smaller. The muscle was atrophied. Couldn't use this hand. It would take an absolute miracle of God to suddenly turn that hand into the capability and likeness of his left hand. But there he restored it. He restored it. Great miracle. And I love the language that it, his hand was restored. Just read into that word restored, the miracle. It grew in size, everything. So he looked at both hands. It's just like the other one. So this was a healing performed by God on the Sabbath. They should have seen it like that. Who could have done that? Right in front of them. Still, they weren't going to bow to it. How did they explain that in their head? How did they get around that? So it's not contrary to the law. Jesus is doing good. He's preserving life on the Sabbath. It totally fits. He answered his own question. But instead of falling down on their knees and begging Jesus to stay with them and teach them, huh, they went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against how to destroy him. The Herodians, they're mentioned three times in the New Testament, all in the Gospels. Kind of in passing, this apparently was a political party. You could translate it uh, partisans of Herod, that is Herod the Great. So this would be supporters, loyal supporters of the, the Herod dynasty. So here's a political party and a very strict religious party that are coming together. Actually, these parties would have been at odds with each other (laughs) because Herod, that represented Rome. The Pharisees, being Jews, were not in favor of being dominated by Rome. So they would not naturally be attracted to them. But the thing that brought them together was a common antagonism to Jesus. Why would the Herodians have an axe to grind with Jesus? Well, the connection that is made is this. Jesus was very good friends with John the Baptist. They were cousins, actually, only six months apart in age. And John the Baptist, when he was alive, preached to Herod Antipas, who was one of the sons of Herod the Great. He was the ruler, the Tetrarch, he was called, of the area of Galilee where Jesus' ministry was. So the Herodians would have been up there in that area is probably, no doubt, supporting Herod Antipas. John the Baptist told Herod Antipas, 
it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And that got John the Baptist in hot water, thrown into prison, and later he had his head taken off. This was Herod Antipas. So they no doubt were against the Lord Jesus Christ as well because of that connection with John. That's a good explanation, I think, of why they would join the Pharisees in opposing Jesus. Look at the language here. They took counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. The word for destroy is the word in the New Testament that's used for eternal destruction, eternal ruin. It's a different word than the word for kill. Jesus distinguished them in John 10 when he said that the thief comes to kill and destroy. But I have come to give life and life more abundantly. I think there's a little more in this than that they simply wanted to kill Jesus. Yes, it involved ending his life, but they also, in their mind, they're thinking, we want this guy to go to hell. This is how much they hate him and hate what he stands for. Get rid of him. Send his soul to hell. So for healing a disabled man on the Sabbath and doing good, Jesus deserves to go to hell. This is their thinking. Pretty outrageous in the irony of all that. There's a couple things we can learn from this. Here we see Jesus demonstrating his lordship over the Sabbath. He, he scraps the traditional rules. He's not going to follow the uh, expectations and the requirements of the religious leaders. They're not going to tell him what to do and how he keeps the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He gave the the commandment and he dictates how it is to be kept, what is right, what is wrong. Now, here's a good question for you to think of. It's a little bit of a trick question. Did Jesus ever rest on the Sabbath? He rested one time, one time only. When he was in the grave, he rested on the Sabbath. That was the only time. Here's here's another point that's important here. And this can be applied to many of Jesus' miracles that involved uh, restoring people physically. But here we have that word actually used, that his hand was restored. One of the things that we anticipate in the future is the restoration of all things. This is Peter's language in Acts 3. It's in a sermon. He's preaching before a Jewish audience in Jerusalem. And in Acts 3.21, he's talking about Jesus is in heaven and he's to be there until... He says, until the time for the restoring all things God spoke about by his holy prophets long ago. This is one way to, and this is one 
angle to look at what's coming in the future. When Paul discusses it in Romans 8, he talks of, he, he uh, describes it in terms of the, the freedom of the creation being liberated from the curse that is on, on the world because of the sin of man. That there is a restoration coming to all things, the universe, the earth. And of course it comes down to, um, to God's people and how are we going to be restored? We're going to be restored in terms of resurrection. Because our bodies are not what they were supposed to be in the beginning. Death was not supposed to be the end of man. It's very unnatural for us to die. That's not the way it was designed to be. We were supposed to live forever. But we die. We get sick, we get old, our bodies fall apart, and then we end up in the grave and disintegrate and turning back to dust. This is all a result of the fall of Adam. But the great thing is, is that resurrection is coming. And the resurrection of the body will involve the fixing of those disabilities that people had in this life, in their bodies. Just like this man's withered hand. When in the resurrection, if his hand had never been fixed by Jesus in this life, in the resurrection, his hand would not be shriveled. He'd have a whole body. Completely whole, restored, fully restored. And just think of the Christians that are quadriplegic and in wheelchairs, can't move from their neck down, who anticipate a future resurrection, being able to walk again, having all their faculties working like they're supposed to. So, in my view, every healing of Jesus that involves some sort of physical restoration of a person, it's a picture in miniature. It's a little picture. It's a preview of what is coming in the future. This gives the church great hope. So, what is it that you know, you're concerned about? What would you like changed? Disability. So the healing performed on this day, it was an indication of the kingdom of God that had arrived, and it's the beginning of the restoration of all things. Yeah, the church has a great future ahead. There's everything to look forward to, and uh, it's wonderful. Thank God for it, that we we have a great hope awaiting us. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.